Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent uh, from eventful day 10 in Paris. Uh, former champion Novak Djokovic uh, lost today to Marco Cecchinato, who's made quite a name for himself, hasn't won a match coming into uh, this major, and now he has won five. And uh, who else better than Matt Zemek to walk us through uh, this eventful day from Roland Garros? Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Sakib. Good to be on with you. Yeah, finally. I mean, the idea was to do a lot of podcasts uh, together, but uh, since you are focusing on writing and some of the software constraints uh, that sometimes we encounter, you've decided to go this route today. So, yeah, let's get into the action right away. Uh, did you see this one coming? I know I talked to Jonathan yesterday from BodyServe, and we both were saying, yeah, Novak at 50% will be good enough, but we, we all know how those uh, predictions turn out, and uh, on any given day, it's anyone's match. Well, you know, um, Mert Ertunga, a friend of uh, of this podcast and a friend of tennis with an accent, you know, he and I both uh, recalled, and we had, because we had discussed this er, uh, earlier in the tournament, uh, when when I wrote a piece about Pablo Cuevas uh, falling short, and you know, being a South American player, it, Roland Garros is so important for South American players. Think of Andres Gomez of Ecuador, who won the French Open in 1990 as a particular example, uh, you know, they, they pour everything into Roland Garros, whereas the other three majors, you know, just don't resonate uh, in the same way. And in 1979 at the French Open, I, I, I mean, I wasn't, I was only three years old, so I didn't see it. But I mean, I, I in terms of, you know, growing up with tennis and studying uh, the, the paths of history, uh, one of the more notable French Open upsets later in the tournament uh, was 1979 when Victor Pecci of Paraguay uh, knocked off Jimmy Connors. And Connors never made a Roland Garros final, which seems pretty darn improbable. And 79 against Pecci was his big chance. But yet, that was an example of a clay court specialist uh, finding not only the quality of his game, but resolve and re- resilience in very tight scoreboard situations against an elite, accomplished player who had done just about everything in tennis. And that is my historical callback, my connection to this match uh, on Tuesday with Cecchinato. Uh it, it was remarkable to see how when the scoreboard got tight, especially in those second and fourth set tie breaks, Cecchinato was fabulous. You know, this was not... In, in those tie breaks, it was not about Djokovic failing. It was about Cecchinato, uh, playing at an extremely high level. Um, our staff writer, uh, Jane Voigt in her story, which has just been posted, uh, as we're recording this podcast, you know, she compared Cecchinato's backhand to Vafrinka. And, uh, I don't think that's an isolated viewpoint. I, a Jim Courier on Tennis Channel, I think, went there with the comparison. I think a lot of other people watching on TV did. And one other aspect of this match, in terms, just in terms of the way the two men played, Cecchinato's defense uh, to all corners of the court was highly reminiscent of Vafrinka's defense in the 2015 Roland Garros final. You know, we all fall in love aesthetically, or at least most of us do, with the Vafrinka backhand, but it was his defense uh, and turning it into offense which enabled him to set up his shots and stay in rallies long enough to get into neutral or winning positions to then overpower Djokovic in the in the second, third, and fourth sets of that 
Roland Garros final three years ago, and there were a lot of points, a lot, uh, in this match in which Cecchinato, uh did much the same thing, and he especially did so uh, in the in the tiebreakers. Uh, in, in fact, the, the one could say that the most important point of the match uh, was a po- point in which Cecchinato played unreal defense. It was the 9-8 point in the fourth set breaker. It was the set point for Djokovic when he when he crushed a return uh, down the line into the deuce corner. And, you know, it's true that Djokovic made an error on a shot that he would normally make nine times out of ten. That is true. However, Cecchinato had to get the ball back. And he had to get the ball back with enough pace that Djokovic had to think about the shot. You know, maybe Cecchinato might have gotten the ball back, but he might have just popped it up such that Djokovic would have had, you know, the equivalent of a tap-in, you know, just an easy smash put away. But Cecchinato forced Djokovic to hit a, a tricky shot. The ball might have bounced a little bit weird. Uh, I think the crowd's uh, gasp uh, of anticipation is what threw off Djokovic more than anything else. But nevertheless, the trajectory of that Cecchinato retrieval uh, made Djokovic think about his shot just a little bit. And once that happened, uh, Cecchinato was able to then turn the corner. So there were so many rich details from this match, uh, so many echoes throughout Roland Garros' history, and uh, those are the foremost ones that come to mind for me. Yeah, that, that's really insightful. And uh, let's hold your thought there on this match. One more question. Uh, you know, like we're all uh, guilty uh, sometimes when this kind of a match uh, there's different narrative before and after, and nobody could see this coming and the level, the high level that was produced. But now in hindsight, I think it's easy for us to say and acknowledge that he did not come here just, you know, by chance. He did account for Pablo Carino Busta and David Goffin, who I think if you do like a roll call of like the best, uh, clay court players in the world, both those guys will be anyone's top 10 or at least top 12. So now in hindsight, it doesn't look bad. Of course, Novak Djokovic is a mountain of its own. You don't beat Goffin until, you know, Anyone will grant you, okay, you, you're going to beat Novak tomorrow. But now the body of work does add up. Yeah, it's his first tournament. Uh, you know, we don't know what this guy's feeling is, and this could be an Alberto Barastegui kind of run, you know, back in the 93 or 94 final when he played against Bruguera, or this could be Martin Brooker. But then this could be another guy, like, who's a late, uh, not a late boomer, but, like, he kind of announced himself a little later uh, than some of his other illustrious countrymen like Seppi and Bonini. And uh, what do you make of his uh, next match, which would be against Dominic Team? That that will be a clash of two playcorders who use a single hand backhand. And before that, also uh, include Dominic Team versus Verev. You know, what's your analysis of that that match that took place today? Well, you know, you bring up a very good point about uh, Trekinato having beaten Carreño Busta and Gofan. You know, and they are very legit uh, playcorders. I would only say as something of a counterpoint, not a not like a total refutation, but just kind of a measured statement in a, in a different direction. Neither man had been playing at a particularly high level during the clay court season. They showed flashes uh, of, of their quality, but they did not exist on a consistently high plane. And I think that was the uh, main reason to doubt that Cecchinato had this kind of performance against Djokovic in him today. And so, with that acting as the segue... Team played the rock-solid kind of clay court match, which has largely evaded him in the clay court season against Zverev. Uh, this was the dominant team 
uh, who many, including myself, think will win Roland Garros once Nadal either retires or begins to uh, decline to the point that he's no longer, you know, easily the number one choice uh, every year when we head to Paris. Uh, Mert Ertunga, who I referenced earlier, wrote our story at Tennis with an Accent on this Team Zverev match, and he really deftly explained how Team displayed a very high tennis IQ in this match. Uh, you'll get the details in Mert's piece, but the long and short of it is that you know, we don't often associate high tennis IQ with Dominic Thiem, uh, especially when he plays on grass and hard courts. But he played a masterful tactical match against Zverev. And yes, Zverev was exhausted. We all know that. But Team still had to have the right plan. And more specifically, Team had to be patient enough to break down Zverev's body, break down his fitness, and, and deconstruct him in, in just the right way. And that's exactly what he did. So the fact that Team played such an intelligent match and the fact that he moved so smoothly through his quarterfinal, I think that's going to have Team in the, in the right frame of mind for Friday's semifinal. So unlike Carreño Busta and Gofan, one can, I think, much more convincingly say that Team is the second-best clay court player in the world right now and that he's playing at a level worthy of his talent, and I think that makes all the difference. That. If 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 uh, Goffin uh, had entered that round of 16 match against Chekinado, uh playing at a great height, uh, pl- playing extremely well, uh, akin to what he did in much of 2017, and Chekinado had still taken him down, uh, I might be less certain about Friday's semifinal. But the fact that Goffin was, you know, just going through a series of ups and downs, riding the roller coaster, that gives me the belief that team is going to be a, a totally different level of beast uh, for Trekanato to take down. It's going to be really tough for the Italian to take that one extra step into the final. Sure. Uh, before we switch to the women's side, I would just like to add two things that Dominic team myself. When I was talking to Rene Denfeld in the preview podcast for Roland Garros, we came to the mouth-watering class that's where a team that just happened and uh, unfortunately did not go the way most anticipated, but even then I kind of believe that this is a court doesn't play as fast as Madrid. This is a court where there's a lot more room to work on the angle. Dominic Team, despite his subpar play season, uh, actually it's never subpar when he beat Rafa Nadal, but despite his subpar play season that the expectations uh, were of him, uh, he still is the second best play court player. And I, I do believe this is his time and, uh, you know, there's no better way to test yourself against the ultimate challenge of Nadal. If Nadal would come through and Team comes through, I still like Team's chance in that final to make it what I said in the preview podcast. It's going to be a five-set battle. And, of course, you know, Nadal losing any time in play is not expected. But Team has to feel this because uh, last two years he reached the semis and lost to Djokovic and Nadal who were, you know, playing some sublime tennis in their own right. And Nadal's doing still the same. But I believe this time she would be the favorite to at least advance to the final and uh, when he plays his first final it'll be it'll be anyone's game even though Rafa is the favorite I think team probably knows uh, this is his time to step up and uh, let's do a quick segue to the All-American semifinal clash you know before the tournament not many people would have picked this in the racket bracket but Sloan Stevens and Madison Keys came through flying colors one more than the other in terms of uh, you know how the one-sided quarterfinal ended up between uh, Sloan and uh, Kasakina. But this is a match, you know, it's a repeat of U.S. Open final, and, you know, 
at least I did not see this would happen. And Madison Key to me is a more surprising entrant into the semifinals compared to Sloan Stevens. If you agree or don't agree, I don't know where you stand with this one. Oh, definitely. Keys is, is the far more surprising uh, semifinalist. Uh, you know, Sloan had made uh, a bunch of fourth rounds at Roland Garros, so it's not as though winning a, a few matches in Paris uh, is something that she hadn't done before. Keys, you know, earlier this clay season, she openly stated her exasperation with clay. I mean, it is it is not a surface that she enjoys, but she came to Paris and and embraced the challenge and the opportunity. Um, you know, Stevens is the player in this match who will have a much more natural comfort zone. Stevens is so much better at at, at playing defense and then changing defense into offense. Uh, one of one person who's appeared on our podcast before, Sakib, is Tumani Cario, and I, I, he very astutely tweeted that Stevens' combination of defense and and uh, court coverage, smarts, tactics. And a specific phrase Tumani used, her injections of pace, meaning that Stevens doesn't hit every ball hard, but she picks her spots when to add several extra miles per hour to her ground strokes. That's something which definitely caught Daria Kasatina off guard. Uh, and that's also going to be a changeup that's going to be hard for Madison Keys. You know, on a, and on clay, it's going to be harder for Keys to win quite as many Three points on her serve, which means more uh, involved rallies, and it's hard to see Keys outworking Stevens uh, in prolonged rallies on a slow surface, very possibly with heavy conditions, uh, given the humid weather um, they're having in Paris all this week. So uh, it, it's really hard to see Keys uh, finding the goods if Stevens is playing at an appreciably high level. Okay. Hey, so let's make a quick segue into what's looming next uh, as far as Roland Garros schedule goes tomorrow. There are like two quarterfinals on each side, and let's do a quick preview of uh, both. Let's start with Halep Kerber. I mean, this is uh, this is classic written all over it, but then a lot of times the matches don't go as the hype. But uh, when they played last time, if that's something to go by in a major, uh, we could be in for a treat, and especially Angie Kerber is someone who's kind of uh, stayed at least in my my view below the radar as uh, the talk was about Bertens and Garcia and others, but she's the one who has made this date with uh, Simona Halep for tomorrow's quarterfinal. I think that the memory of that epic Australian Open semifinal, and that's that was a match in which the word epic, which is often overused, genuinely applied. You know that was a true epic. I think the memory of that coming through that test is going to be very beneficial for Halep in this match, and I think that on a slower surface than Melbourne uh, will also make it harder for Kerber to hit through the court. I think that Halep has a better chance of being able to redirect and angle the ball and move Kerber around the court and play the kinds of points that she wants to play. I don't think this is going to be an easy or straightforward match. Uh, Kerber has uh, managed to defeat uh, Kiki Burton's and then Caroline Garcia, and she blew out Garcia. Uh, Garcia obviously helped in terms of making that match lopsided with a terrible performance, but nevertheless, uh, if you're beating Burtons and Garcia on clay in France, you're doing something right. So I, I think that Kerber will, will put up a lot of resistance, but I do think that Halep has the definite upper hand. So you picking Halep then? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 
And then uh, the second quarterfinal is uh, Maria Sharapova, and uh, former, also a former winner, and then uh, against 2016 winner Garbinia Muguruza. They haven't played in a while, as uh, Jonathan mentioned in last night's podcast, but uh, for you know, for different reasons, they both are different players since uh, they last met on the WTA tour. And uh, who's uh, who's your favorite in that one, and how would you break that match down? I think if we're being honest, this is a total toss-up match. And uh, the, the big reason is this. You know, if you remember, uh, and I'm going to use some ATP examples to make a WTA point. I think that's still legal. Um, in 2011 at Roland Garros, Novak Djokovic was riding that huge winning streak. But then Fabio Fanini withdrew, uh, gave uh, Djokovic a walkover in the quarterfinals. And Djokovic looked very sluggish in the semis against Federer. And then in 2012 at the U.S. Open, you know, Federer was cruising through the first week, but then Marty Fish gave him a walkover in the fourth round, and Federer looked rusty in the early going in his quarterfinal loss to Tomas Birdik. So uh, Sharapova and Muguruza have both been given free passes through the fourth round. Now, it wasn't technically a walkover for Muguruza since um, Letia Sorenko started that match, but after three games in, which is barely any kind of tennis at all, you know, Serenko had to call it quits. So essentially, not technically, but essentially, both players have not played in uh, three and a half days. So how they are going to play in this match after an interruption of the rhythm athletes crave, uh, you know, athletes like to be able to play every other day in a way that they're used to. The lack of a rhythm and a flow in this tournament, which has been completely interrupted for both, and they also both played very easy third-round matches. Neither one lost more than three games, I think, in the third round. Uh, it, it is really, really hard to discern uh, how well and how sharp they're going to play. I can very easily see either player, you know, uh, either completely dominating or completely stumbling early on, and that could shape the whole thing. I, I would say tactically, Sakib, that uh, Sharapova wants to get in the first strike. And I know that Muguruza is capable of getting in the first strike, but I think that Sharapova wants and needs the first strike a little bit more. I think that if, uh, especially when Muguruza is serving, if Muguruza can stay in the point and, and get to a neutral position after like five or six shots, if she can withstand the Sharapova return uh, and work her way into rallies, I think that Muguruza, at this point in her career, is will be better suited to the longer rally, and Sharapova would like to get on top of points a little bit more quickly. So I think that's going to determine uh, much of the match. Um, I am going to lean toward Muguruza, if only because she has uh, taken Sharapova's place as the person who knows how to step up her game at Roland Garros. You know, that was Sharapova's identity 2012 through 2014, uh, but now it's Muguruza's identity. And I know that she lost in the fourth round last year, but that was the infamous match in which she was harassed by the French crowd against Kiki Mladenovic. She won't have a French woman to deal with here. And in fact, I think the crowd is going to be behind her uh, so just on that hunch, not really too much else, I'm going to lean toward Muguruza. But again, I think if we're being honest, it's a total coin flip of a match. Yeah, fair enough. 
And now let's do a quick preview of uh, the big boy quarterfinal between uh, Juan Martin Del Potro and Marin Cilic. Some interesting stats for you, probably all we know, but for the listeners, Del Potro leads the series 10-2. Uh, Chilich's last win came in 2011, which is like ancient times, and that was on a hard coast. This is their fourth meeting on clay, and uh, Chilich has yet to win a set, and this, uh, the last meeting on clay was in 2012 Roland Garros when Juan Martin delivered a convincing three-set uh, knockout punch. So what changes uh, if Chilich has to win this tomorrow? Uh, I, and, you know, Chilich, Chilich has to lean on his serve and a, and a one-two punch. Uh, you know, John Isner tried to do that but couldn't. Uh, Chilich needs to find a way to execute that plan. And if Chilich can execute that plan to the, to the point that he can steal a couple tiebreakers, he can get into a fifth set. And I think that if he gets into a fifth set and if this match goes really long, that can perhaps expose Del Potro's fitness. Um, the big question before this tournament in terms of Del Potro was his fitness. You know, he had a great draw. I think the first four matches have have affirmed that notion. Uh, it was all going to come down to would he be healthy enough to take advantage of his draw. And so far, he, he looked, you know, pretty good on that front. So uh, if Chilich can steal a tiebreaker, create a long match, uh, and, and, and play, stay on the court long enough, uh, you know, and get into a fifth set, that's his path. I, I think it's going to be extremely hard for Chilich to win this match in straights or even four sets. He just needs to find a way to get to a fifth set, and that can be his best chance. I think if it, as long as it's, it's three or four sets, uh, Del Potro uh, is showing enough uh, sturdiness in, in all aspects of his game to be the better player, as he has been uh, for most of this head-to-head. So you're leaning towards uh, any particular player? Is this too close to Paul, or are you going with Del Potro? I, I think I think I think it'll be Del Potro uh, unless Chilich manages to get it to a fifth set, and I don't think Chilich will. So I'm going with Del Potro. Okay, I'll back to differ. I think Chilich will pull this out. I think I have a feeling this is because he's also played some good big matches. He's gone deep into majors. I think lately more than Del Potro. So I I look for the the Croat to strike in four. Very possible, and uh, of course uh, we can wrap this up with the last, but you know by no means the least. It's a it's a man who's on a mission trying to win his 11th major, 11th Roland Garros. Rafael Nadal, you know, still making it look routine, and he's taking against uh, Diego Schwartzman, who's again come back to life. And I want to add another question. It's a two two tier question. One, you preview and break down this match, and secondly, I think as a as you know as someone who's trying to cover tennis, and you me are as guilty as anyone. A lot of time, it's like football. Any given Sunday, we change our narrative. And uh, both Schwartzman and Del Potro are proving that sometimes players really peak for the big tournaments. They both, for different reasons, didn't have an impressive clay court season. Juan Martin had a smaller window, played two events, withdrew in Rome. So the fitness card was not sure if he's going to show up here and what level of fitness. And uh, Schwartzman had like big billing coming in after the uh, Latin American play swing, struggled to win a match for the first three tournaments and did a good showing in Madrid, but again lost in Rome fairly early. And now he's in the quarterfinals and after a great effort against Kevin Anderson. So, so yeah, there's a two-tier question. First, how does the mat, uh, this match, uh, you know, stack up in your view? And secondly, sometimes are we harsh when we start judging these guys on a weekly basis when they actually do show up for the big party? 
Well, I'm going to tackle that second part first, that, you know, you're entirely right that, that Schwartzman has really answered the bell here. And it, it is fascinating to see how these different examples on the ATP tour, actually also the WTA tour are cropping up. You know, Madison Keys and Sloan Stevens, they, you know, they went through valleys and difficult periods on over the past two months on clay, but they've picked up their game. So that, so, what they are doing at Roland Garros uh, on the WTA side uh, is being matched by uh, Schwartzman, Chilich, and Delpo uh, on the ATP side. So it, 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 we're, we're seeing actually a lot of these examples uh, multiply on both tours, uh, and, and it does show that you know when 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 we're in the middle of a surface-specific season, and specifically in the warm-up events before the big one. Any struggles always come with that one asterisk, and that asterisk says uh, uh, unless they do well at the major tournament, and uh, we're, we're all seeing them do well at that major tournament. So the, the, the struggles were real, and the struggles were worthy of concern, uh, but when you do well at the major, at the end of a surface-specific portion of the calendar, you know, those previous struggles definitely go away, and they definitely decrease in, in, in the larger scheme of things. As for the match uh, between uh, Nadal and Schwartzman, if you were to devise a scenario for a challenger to beat Rafael Nadal, this would not be it. Uh, Schwartzman is coming into this match off an, uh, a nearly four-hour battle uh, against Kevin Anderson. It was a match in which his serve got broken ten times. And, yes, it was an amazing, spectacular fight back from Diego to overcome a 5-3 deficit not in one set, but two, uh, and also to overcome his serve being broken in each of the first two games in the fifth set uh, to have more staying power uh, against a legitimately high-quality server uh, who has done really well in his career over the past several months, Kevin Anderson. So Schwartzman's achievement in that match was considerable and deserves lavish praise. But now that we turn to Rafa, uh, if, if you're going to play him, you don't want to play him on these terms. You want to play him with a full uh, fuel tank, and you want to play him knowing that you can get an appreciable amount of cheap points on serve, and I just don't see Diego being able to check any of the boxes that are needed to win this match. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, anything can happen, but Diego doesn't really fit the uh, very limited criteria, you know, that that very few people few players fall under who have a chance against Nadal. But again, you know, any match uh, is a new match. Any day is a new day. At least that's what we learned today. So, Matt, that was, again, a wonderful analysis. As always, it was a pleasure speaking with you on this forum. Hopefully, we can do this uh, more often. Uh, Yeah, and uh, thanks for doing this on such a short notice. You're welcome. And I just want to invite our listeners uh, to follow us on Twitter at accent underscore tennis. And to follow us on the web at tennisaccent.com. And we're cranking out all our content and, and keep uh, following us for written articles and podcasts uh, throughout Roland Garros and throughout the rest of the 2018 tennis season, which we have committed to covering for you.